Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director at AFG. Remember when the then Prime Minister told us all to stay at home, then reassured us that the government was following the science? How about when the then Chancellor introduced us all to the word furlough? And what about being encouraged to eat out to help out? Thankfully, it all seems like a different era, but the government's response to the COVID pandemic shaped all of our lives, and for many people, the impact of its decisions continues to shape our lives. At the heart of the government's response was the Treasury, scrambling to design and roll out huge economic support packages. But how did the Treasury go about taking those decisions and coming up with those policies? Was it following the science or was its focus on the balance sheet? And how well did it work with other departments during a time of huge strain on government? Well, the Treasury's response to the pandemic is the focus of a major new report from the Institute for Government, and this special episode of Inside Briefing is going to take a closer look at what that report found and what it says should be done differently. Joining me are the authors of the report, IFG's Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, IFG's Senior Economist, Ollie Bartram, and I'm delighted that we're also joined by Chris Giles, the Economics Editor at the FT, who was, of course, reporting on the Treasury's response throughout the crisis. Hi, Chris. Hello. So before we start diving into the specifics, Ollie, why did we decide to write this report and why are we focusing on the Treasury? It's obviously very important that we learn the lessons from the government's response to the pandemic. As you outlined in the introduction, it was a huge shock and one that required us to do completely new things, both in terms of the public health response, but also in terms of the economic response. So in the case that we need to respond to a pandemic in the future or some other type of crisis, or just if there are any lessons to learn for normal policy making, we need to reflect on those. Obviously, the COVID inquiry is looking at that across government, and that's incredibly important work, but it may take some time until that concludes. So we thought it was important to look now before memories fade, and also to hopefully provide a a helpful input uh, into the inquiry. Now, why the Treasury in particular? Well, it's a huge player in the government's response. It led the economic response, providing loads of financial support to the private sector in in a really distressing, troubling time. But it's also a big player in the centre of government. It's not a normal finance ministry. So it would have come together with the Cabinet Office and Number 10 to make some of those really important decisions. And I think less is actually known about the Treasury's response or the economic evidence that was used. And that's partly because there was less transparency around it. So we wanted to lift the lid on that a little bit. Well, let's get on with lifting that lid. So let's start by looking at what the report describes as the first phase of decision making. So the first few weeks and months of the pandemic, when government imposed the first lockdown and then the Treasury reacted with a series of economic support measures for the labour market and for business. Chris, what did you make of how the Treasury handled those first few months in the pandemic? Well, it was clearly flying by the seat of its pants. It it didn't have a pre-prepared plan. I think I accept the Treasury officials' view that even if it did have a pre-prepared plan, it would still be flying by the seat of its pants because you couldn't have planned for exactly the circumstances we faced. Um, And I think you have to give officials quite a lot of credit for the broad facts of what happened. Leave aside the did we lock down too late argument, uh, where I think the Treasury wasn't driving that one. But once we'd taken the decision to lock down, there was clearly an enormous problem of lack of income that households and companies were going to face. And officials managed to put together an unprecedented set of new policies 
delivered in entirely new ways in a matter of days. And that showed sort of policymaking, albeit on the hoof, very, very quick, pretty effective in terms of at least making sure that people didn't starve, people's livelihoods could continue and companies didn't immediately go bankrupt. And so overall, you kind of describe the support schemes as, as a success um, in, in what they set out to achieve? Well, I think we want we might want to come back and have a look at uh, them compared with other countries and what other countries did. Because let's, let's be absolutely clear. So when I've just given sort of a, a rather high score to the Treasury, you've got to say that nearly every other advanced economy did something similar and managed to also achieve the same ambitions. It wasn't that the UK was blessed uh, with its economic response. In fact, when we look at it you know, with the benefit of hindsight, our economy has not performed better over the longer term than other countries coming through the pandemic. We spent a lot more money than other countries on our COVID response and have only had a similar outcome. So in that sense, the very, very big picture is not so encouraging for the UK government and the UK Treasury. Just to give you some figures, the big loosening of fiscal policy cost the UK 11% of GDP. That's just a, a staggering amount of money. Other G20 advanced economies, the average was 7.5%. And I think the only country that was larger than the UK was Canada, and it was only a, a tiny, weeny bit larger. So we were right at the top of the amount of money we spent, and our outcomes were not better. In that very big picture, I think we haven't done so well. And of course, one of the things people have really zoomed in on, and when looking at what didn't go so well, is the level of fraud that the government exposed itself to. This is something that, for instance, former Minister Lord Agnews talked a lot about, and particularly focusing on the bounce-back loan scheme. I mean, do you think that the Chancellor's struck the right balance between getting the schemes out really quickly, as you know, you say that that was absolutely necessary, but then also mitigating the risk of, of fraud? I think with the benefit of hindsight, the answer has to be no, because we've clearly spent more than other countries with no better result. But this is where I, I start to worry about using the benefit of hindsight, because when you think about the decisions that were made at the time they were made, I am rather more generous to the officials and ministers for the difficulty of the situation that the UK and other countries faced. I think, you know, it's time for lessons learned. Why was it the case that we spent more and got less? I think that's now. I wouldn't want to be too critical about the decisions made at the time. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that, Chris. I think one of our interviewees put it particularly well when they said that what mattered at that time isn't what was precisely the right amount of support, because that was impossible to calibrate, but what in fact settles expectations and convinces businesses and households that government will step in and do the right thing, which prevents sort of the economy from sort of spiralling out of control. So it was about acting really decisively when you don't know what the precise magnitude quantum of support is necessary. Gemma, I mean, do you think that some of those trade-offs could have been avoided if the Treasury and indeed the rest of government had done more preparation or, as Chris says, or you were just um, benefiting from hindsight? I mean, to a large extent, I agree with the point that Chris just made there, which is very much seems to be the Treasury's position on this, that they never could have predicted terribly precisely what the impact of a pandemic was going to be and therefore they could never have been extraordinarily well prepared for the shocks that came along and they were always going to have to make things up on the hoof but I think I think we probably should still reflect that more could have been done and thinking about future shocks future potential crises more should be done so 
the government had identified at the top of its risk register a pandemic as being the top risk. Now, the pandemic they'd identified was a flu pandemic rather than a coronavirus pandemic. And to some extent, preparing for a flu pandemic wouldn't have been the right preparations for a coronavirus pandemic, particularly when it came to things like the health response for coronavirus stockpiling of protective equipment and testing was much more important than it would have been for flu. There were various projections that different authors had tried to make of what effect a flu pandemic might have on the UK economy or other economies pre-pandemic, some of, some of which came out sort of 10 years before the COVID pandemic. And those actually painted a picture of quite significant widespread economic hits, particularly coming about because of people stopping going out and engaging in economic activity, trying to reduce their risk of catching a disease by not going to retail and hospitality venues. And if you think about that kind of picture that those forecasts painted, actually all of those pointed to, in some cases, up to a 30% decline in GDP, big falls in demand for face-to-face services, all of which would have pointed to the need for the government, the Treasury, to step in in some way to prop up those businesses through a pandemic hit. So I think on the one hand, they couldn't, the Treasury couldn't have been fully prepared. On the other hand, taking slightly more seriously that pandemic risk that was identified on the government's risk register might have got the Treasury asking itself the sort of questions about how might we respond to this kind of threats. The Treasury could do more and needs to do more in future to think seriously about threats that are fundamentally not economic in nature. The Treasury has pretty good systems in place for managing and monitoring economic and fiscal threats. It's done less in the past to monitor and think about those non-economic risks that nonetheless have economic consequences. Chris, what do you make of that, the argument that more risk preparation or you know paying kind of more attention, I suppose, to the risk register would have improved our response? I mean, lots has been made of the fact that government prepared for the, the wrong pandemic, but as Gemma outlines, when it comes to the kind of economic impact, actually even an influenza um, pandemic um, implied social distancing and some form of restriction. So, so yeah, what do you make of, of, of that argument? Well, I think you can't really criticise what Gemma has just said. It's clearly would have been better had we thought more about what social distancing means, what a 30% decline in GDP in one quarter means, because that is essentially what we had in the second quarter of 2020. So I think, yes, the world would have been better had the Treasury thought a bit more about it. Would it have been that much better given the speed at which furlough scheme and other support schemes were put in place? I don't really think so is the is the honest answer. It would have been less scary because if you think back, if you think about what we knew at the time, it was terrifying for lots of households and lots of businesses uh, because they thought they were going to lose their livelihoods overnight and the government wasn't there. And now government did come in extremely quickly, but there was at least a week or two weeks of extreme fear, fear of the disease itself and fear of the economic consequences that flowed from the very rapid shutdown of economies. That happened even in countries like Sweden that didn't lock down, but it still had the same basic effect. So, you know, I hesitate to say it's obvious that we should have had more preparation, given that the costs were not that large of not having it. But I do think there was, I I agree that more than zero was definitely um, the right number. I don't want to go too far in saying that more should have been done, but you can see in the way that the government responded and some of the strengths and weaknesses of the schemes that were rolled out, you can see the 
the sort of opportunities and constraints that existed because of the type of systems and preparations that were already in place pre-pandemic. So particularly the, the business loan schemes that the government was able to roll out built very heavily on existing schemes that had been there, particularly that had been introduced as in response to the financial mm. crisis 10 years previously. Um, and the problems that came up in offering loans and guarantees to businesses, particularly around the bounce back loan scheme that you already talked about and the high level of fraud there. The difficulty there was actually government didn't have a way of identifying genuine businesses. And a lot of the fraud in that scheme has been related to businesses that didn't exist or got set up precisely to apply for those schemes. Similarly, when you think about the self-employed support scheme, some of the gaps that were, that were there and the hard edges related to the fact that uh, HM Revenue and Customs only had information about people who'd been self-employed for sufficiently long that they'd already filed a tax return and then there are delays between when tax returns get filed and when the economic activity happens. So the data and systems that government already had in place constrained what government was able to do in the moment. And Chris is right, they went incredibly quickly to do what they could, but there were holes in support which certainly looking forward to thinking about future shocks. There are definitely questions that the Treasury needs to be looking at. I think they are starting to look at this about what data might you like to have for mm -hmm. next time something happens to be able to identify the types of businesses, the types of households who are most affected by different types of shocks. We've been focusing on the Treasury. That's the subject of the report. But of course, it wasn't the only department involved in the schemes. Um, Gemma, who else was involved? And, and what do we say in the report about how well the Treasury worked with those people? One big aspect of why they managed to roll out schemes so quickly was because of very good close working between the Treasury and the departments who had to deliver some of these schemes, particularly between the Treasury and HMRC to get the furlough and self-employed scheme out and between the Treasury and the Bank of England and the British Business Bank to get the business loan guarantee schemes out. And we heard from various interviewees a very positive story of how closely those departments worked together and that delivery officials were sort of in the room with ministers from quite an early stage, which really helped to speed up the process of figuring out what's possible and how can you kind of marry up what's possible with the objectives ministers had. Ollie, I mean, just reflecting on what um, Gemma and Chris have said about the speed with which, you know, the Treasury was able to stand up, you know, kind of critically um, important economic policies. You know, does it feel like this is the period where the Treasury's um, strengths really shone through? Absolutely. And this, you know, I don't want the fact that we're sort of dwelling on the improvements that could have been made through better risk management and stuff like that to to detract from the, the really strong feeling that came through in our research for this, that the department really excelled in these first few weeks and months. Interviewees described to us how the Treasury sort of lives, really lives for this sort of big event and is, and, uh, and is great in a crisis. The speed and intelligence with which it responded sort of reflect its characteristic agility, uh, the dedication of its officials and, you know, more generally, the real sort of talent and dedication of the civil service was really on show during the pandemic, uh, both in the Treasury and elsewhere. And we argue that these are strengths that really need to be celebrated and maintained. And sort of where things did go wrong, it's more a case of those individuals being let down by the constraints imposed by systems, resources, incentives. I do think there's maybe one thing that we, we should think about. One of the reasons that we think the the um, pandemic response, particularly the early phase, was so strong is because it was so extensive and that support in the UK was bigger than it was in many other countries. It was probably, 
you know, with again with the benefit of hindsight, it was probably too large, um, and that is one of the reasons that uh, our costs have been so much higher. And I do think that is a, something that we need to think about, and the inquiry into COVID needs to think about it was did we actually go too far? Did that then have some longer term disincentive effects because we've not come out of the pandemic in a brilliant place as a country? Really important point. Thanks, Chris. Okay, now I want to get into the second phase of decision-making as we're describing it, the kind of tug-of-war phase in the centre of government. So from exiting the first lockdown in summer 2020 through to the implementation of the second and third lockdowns in autumn 2020 and Christmas 2020, I think it's fair to say the government became a little less unified. Um, There were obvious tensions between those who were prioritising suppressing the virus through social restrictions and others who were prioritising a return to normal life and, and normal economic activity or as close to normal as possible. Chris, throughout the pandemic, you wrote quite a lot about the trade-off between the economy and public health or the lack of trade-off. How did you understand that that relationship? Well, I think from the summer of 2020, when we had restrictions lifted, as you say, then government, or at least parts of government, which would include the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, wanted to move quicker towards opening up than maybe some of their health experts did. And because at, at the time, and I think this this is a very sort of very sketchy, but I think that a correct view of the trade-off between, as it were, uh, lives and livelihoods or health and economics, when we had no vaccine and no particular cure for coronavirus, then that trade-off was not very large. And some people said it didn't even exist. So the more you did for improved health, the better was your economic performance. And you can see that in countries such as uh, Australia and New Zealand that locked down entirely and did rather well through that period in 2020-21 when they effectively had no virus at all and so could live a relatively normal life. And at the end, when we had a vaccine, there was a massive trade-off. So when the vast majority of the population were vaccinated, then it was absolutely clear you wanted to open up. The interim phase in the summer of 2020, clearly we didn't have a vaccine at the time. So you couldn't, and it was incorrect to say that you knew it was safe to go out and you knew that you weren't going to be propagating the spread of the virus by interacting with other people. So at that time, I think there was particularly the Chancellor and particularly the Prime Minister almost certainly encouraged sort of unsafe behaviour. Eat out to help out is the classic example of this monumentally stupid policy. But I don't think it's very big. So on one level, it was clearly the wrong policy, clearly what everyone uses as, as an example of a bad economic policy at the wrong time. Much better to have subsidised the businesses directly if that was needed because you didn't want to have lots of social interaction. Whether it made a big difference to the course of the virus, I don't think it did. And I think some of the evidence suggesting it had a big impact is quite weak. Do we really think it would not have created the Delta wave that started in India and then came to the UK in 2021 if we hadn't had Eat Out to Help Out? I think it's very, very difficult to say that the course of the pandemic would have been very different without that policy. But it was clearly the wrong policy at the wrong time. Gemma, what does the report say about how ministers came together to balance the the trade-offs or perceived trade-offs between um, health and the economy during the pandemic? So as Chris has said, from the sort of late spring onwards in 2020, 
the decision-making trade-offs became much more difficult. The more there was a threat of the disease, the less people wanted to go out and socialise and take part in the economy. But similarly, people going out and socialising had impacts on what the path of the pandemic was going to be. And so within government, sort of making good decisions in that environment required understanding what was happening with economic and social behaviours, understanding what was happening with the spread of the disease and how those things all fed back through to each other. And whilst in the first few weeks there had been a sort of simple decision to lock down and then other policy decisions were made conditional on the lockdown being in place, as we went into the summer there started to be a question about how do we ease restrictions and what do we do with other policies alongside that. And the structures within the centre of government were in a lot of churn during that phase. There was not a good, coherent way of synthesising evidence from across different parts of government during that period. And therefore, certainly what we've heard from many interviewees that we've spoken to was that there was not a sort of consistent evidence base going to ministers that was then informing decisions being made by ministers across different departments and ultimately by the prime minister. And in that context, it seems that decision-making became a bit of a tug of war that started to be a sort of health lobby pushing for the continuation of strict lockdown measures and almost in opposition to that a sort of economics treasury view lobby within the centre of government trying to push the economic case that we needed to release restrictions more quickly and get back to normal life and that does seem to have led to ineffective decision making during that period through summer and into autumn of 2020 and we picked out in particular a couple of things so as Chris already mentioned eat out to help out um, I would agree with Chris that I don't think it's it wasn't the thing that set off the second wave on the other hand I think it does raise a question about why the treasury went with that policy direction which seems very inconsistent with the understanding among government health experts at the time about the risks of a second wave of the disease so I think that does raise a question about the communication and sharing of information that was going on within the center of government that you had different parts of government apparently pulling in quite different directions at the same point in time similarly if you look forward through the autumn there was a lot of disagreement around whether there should be a circuit breaker in September, a sort of short, sharp lockdown to restrict the spread of the virus. Whilst it would have had higher upfront economic costs, it might have had no larger or indeed smaller long-term economic costs by sort of shutting down the spread of the disease quickly and sharply rather than allowing it to spread and then having to do a much longer, bigger lockdown later on. In our report, we haven't attempted to get to grips of, with exactly what the right decision then would have been, but there was clearly a a disagreement within the central government about that and people working from different evidence bases. In terms of the Treasury's activities at that point in the autumn, one thing that looks suboptimal was how the Treasury decided and messaged around the economic support policies at that time. So even though as we went through the autumn, it became increasingly clear that it was likely there was going to be another lockdown of some sort. The health advisers within government were pushing increasingly strongly for that. And eventually that did happen at the beginning of November 2020. The Treasury throughout October had been maintaining the line that furlough was going to come to an end at the end of October. It was going to be replaced by a less generous job support scheme. And it was only right at the 11th hour that the Treasury reversed that and said actually furlough is going to continue literally almost on the day that mm -hmm. the government announced that the lockdown was coming back in at the beginning of November. So again it was there was an inconsistency between what increasingly seemed to be the understanding within health experts within the government about the need for another lockdown 
but then that the economic support programmes and the messaging around those wasn't matching up to what seemed increasingly obvious was going to be the outcome on the lockdown side. And so do we think one of the problems was a kind of a lack of synthesis um, of somebody overlooking across the kind of the, the economic and, and, and health advice? Yes, it seems what we heard from interviewees was ministers in different departments were quite reliant on briefing from their own officials mm. um, but there was less good sharing of information across departments I mean our focus here is very much about what analysis and evidence the treasury was sharing with other departments and what we heard was that, that wasn't being effectively synthesized within the cabinet office within the center of government and therefore ministers were not working from a common understanding of the yeah. evidence base yeah and just in terms of the impacts on policy making point that we try to make in the report is that actually if you do this process of effective synthesis of evidence I think it is quite clear from the literature in economics and in public health that economic concerns and public health concerns are pulling in the same direction there is a really strong complementarity between them it is not always a one or the other trade-off but if your decision-making structures are set up such that you have this tug of war and you're incentivized to take the extreme position in order to try to win the argument, that is then how the decision gets portrayed to the Prime Minister and the people making the decision who choose one or the other. And I think that's how you can get into situations where you have the economic side winning the argument for a delay, but not really realising that that delay given constraints on the NHS, meaning that you'll actually just have to do stricter and stronger restrictions later down the line. Mm -hmm. And Ollie, just, just staying on this kind of economic and, and, and science advice split for a while, we, we talk quite a lot in the report about um, how they were kind of used during the pandemic. I mean, what are some of the differences between how science advice was used versus economic advice? And, and you know, why did those differences matter? So I think the main one I'd draw out is institutions or lack thereof so for scientific and public health advice we have obviously had SAGE and all of its subcommittees channeling evidence in both from government departments and also from outside government now we're not saying that SAGE was perfect there's a very good report from our friends at Sense About Science about some of the flaws in uh, the use of scientific evidence uh, during the pandemic but there were no formal structures to channel economic and social science evidence into decision-making in the same way. Indeed, Treasury vetoed suggestions to set up this sort of structure. Now, I think that that would have brought two key benefits. The first one is just transparency. Uh, SAGE made the sort of extraordinary decision to publish all of the advice that was going through it. We argue that transparency will improve the quality of analysis. And it also meant that they were uh, able to make much greater use of external expertise. So SAGE, the secretary at the structure around it, was able to channel loads of evidence and expertise from outside of government into decision making. The Treasury did a little bit of this, but a lot of it was through sort of ad hoc relationships. And the result was that much less external economic and social science expertise were, was brought to bear on the questions. Probably the, the other significant one that, that comes straight from transparency is just that the scientific evidence was much more salient in public debate. I think that's probably a good thing, but 
the imbalance was not a good thing. So to only have the scientific evidence sort of up for debate and up for scrutiny probably led to a greater sort of focus on that than should have been the case. We probably should have had a, a transparency around all forms of evidence that were going into decision making. So we need a, um, a treasury sage who can come up with a different name. Um, Gemma? Yeah, I was just going to add that. And one of the, the rationale for having sage is that in crises of this sort, government doesn't have internally all the expertise it needs to answer important scientific questions in this sort of situation. But the same could be said for economics. I mean, it, it may be government perhaps has somewhat more economic expertise than it does hard science. But in a sort of crisis like this, you could never expect government to have all of the expertise, the capacity to do all the analysis it needs internally. So I think there is quite a strong case, in addition to the transparency one, for having more formal structures in place to enable government to access the best quality analysis and feed that in a systematic way into policymaking. Chris, you've been patiently listening um, to our experts make the case for uh, why the way that government organised itself uh, led to some suboptimal decisions like um, eat out to help out. And what do you make of, of that argument? Do you agree? Do you think there are other explanations? I, I think I broadly agree. I think one of the strongest cases in the report is for some form of economic sage. Now, you would expect me to say this because I'm a journalist, um, but I think transparency is vitally important in helping foster good decision making. And if you'd had some committee of wise people, which would come together on an ad hoc basis, because there was a cost of, of, and a hassle to having a committee. But in these, these circumstances, I think you would have had a much better economic debate because the public economic debate, which was often fostered by either the Chancellor or the various people within close to the Chancellor, sort of SPADs, uh, special advisors to the Chancellor or, or around government who would be just making out as if the economic debate was very clear, that it was absolutely clear that the thing that was it would help the economy would be to open up. And in the economics community, that wasn't the case at all. So ultimately, that was the case. But at the time, there was a big debate going around about, you know, is, is there a trade-off at all between health and economics? And is the thing that really helps you to be able to have a more healthy economy in a really constrained and uh, difficult time, actually um, having a lockdown and having um, more healthy people or fewer problems with the pandemic itself. So if you could have had that in the open so the documents were, were there for everybody to see, they would have said, we don't really know. But it wouldn't have been, you, you wouldn't have got a narrative in quite a lot of the country that suggested that the only thing that was good for the country was to open up. And in that autumn of 2020, that was quite often something I remember sort of fighting against, that the that good economics meant more opening up, when actually it was a really nuanced and difficult argument. So I'm going to go on to the um, the final uh, phase of decision-making that we cover in the report. Um, we talk about how decision-making got much better in 2021, and in particular how the roadmap out of lockdown that was published in, in February that year, 2021, seemed to better balance all the different considerations of health, economy and so on. Um, I mean, first of all, Chris, do you agree that government did get better at managing trade-offs um, as the pandemic went on? Or was it just that the arrival of the vaccine meant there were fewer trade-offs to deal with? I think it's actually 
actually the latter. I think the vaccine was a complete game changer in terms of allowing both uh, the, the population to be healthier and the economy to open up safely. So it's very, very difficult to run the um, thought experiment of if we'd had no vaccine, would the February roadmap to opening up have been much use? My bet is it would have not been necessarily much use. And it was really useful precisely because we could see that you could have both lower numbers of people in hospital, the NHS being under less pressure, and you could open up at the same time. And there were huge debates about all aspects of society opening up. And you know, and that was right and proper. But as time went on, you could see that the health impacts of opening up were not very large, but the economic impacts of opening up were very large. And so the trade-off became very clear, but it was all to do with the vaccine. Gemma, what do you think? What's our evidence um, for, for decision-making getting better? So I would agree with Chris, and it's something that various interviewees we spoke to also raised was this issue that from the end of 2020, it became apparent that a vaccine was going to be available quickly. Um, that did, really did change the decisions facing government. In particular, we no longer faced the possibility of just permanently having to have repeated lockdowns. But I think there is evidence there that beyond just the fact of the vaccine, that there was a greater clarity of thinking within the centre of government. And in particular, from sort of somewhere around the end of 2020, um, there was a much stronger analysis function within the Cabinet Office task force, with a team drawing together different types of analysis from across government and working together to synthesise those to understand how they interacted with one another, including having much more constructive input from the Treasury to understand what the economic outlook was and how that interacted with the health outlook. So I think that was a substantive change. It is hard to disentangle from the impact of the vaccine at exactly the same time. But as Chris said, the February 2021 roadmap did show, um, I think, a much clearer picture that suggested there was much greater clarity in the sort of thinking and the link between evidence and analysis and policy decision. And in particular, I draw a distinction in a couple of places. Firstly, that the February 2021 roadmap had a much clearer sense of a sort of prioritisation of measures and restrictions that were going to be eased. Particularly, there was a focus on opening up schools before opening up hospitality venues and things, which hadn't been apparent in the 2020 uh, roadmaps. And also a much clearer relationship between the sort of data that government said it was going to be looking at and indicators of whether the disease was ebbing and how that would relate to lifting of restrictions, which hadn't been there in the 2020 roadmaps out of lockdown. Ollie, um, Gemma's highlighted the COVID task force that was based in Cabinet Office um, as one of the things that helped manage some of the trade-offs more effectively. I mean, given that the COVID task force was based in Cabinet Office, does it feel a bit unfair to uh, that our report lays lots of the, the blame of what went wrong on the, the, the Treasury store? We began investigating the Treasury for this report, and, and that, is who we've, that, is, that is who we've focused on in the write-up. But as we do discuss in the report, much of what we found in terms of the shortcomings in the central decision-making process uh, was sort of at the centre of government. And that's that's not just the Treasury, that's the Treasury, that's the Cabinet Office, that's number 10. Um, and indeed, Cabinet Office bears primary responsibility for synthesising evidence, bringing everyone together. So it's not just the Treasury that should take lessons from 
our report, but it is an important part of the centre and a powerful voice. And there's definitely evidence from our research for this project that it actually quite actively undermined the synthesis process in 2020. And it was only when the central function in the Cabinet Office was strong enough from the end of 2020 onwards that it sort of got strong-armed into being a bit more collaborative. Interviewees consistently pointed to two things. One was in the Treasury's approach to sharing information, where it was very opaque. And if it did share sort of substantive analysis on the interactions between public health and the economy or on analysis of the economic impacts of specific interventions, it would only do so when that analysis sort of pointed uh, in the direction of its or its minister's policy preferences. And as I mentioned earlier, vetoed suggestions to set up structures similar to SAGE for socioeconomic advice. Chris, I mean, based on the discussion we've had today, but also all the reporting that you did throughout the pandemic, what lessons do you think the Treasury should take from the pandemic experience? Well, first of all, I think it should feel pretty proud of its overall response. And the lesson from that would be that don't change too much and make sure that you still have staff who are able to respond in a dynamic and rapid form to new things that turn up. Uh, so that, I think, is one very important lesson. I fully take on board Gemma's point that more preparation for big, risky events is better than less preparation for big, risky events. And so the world would be a better place with a little bit more preparation for these things. I think transparency is very valuable, particularly in a crisis, because not only does it, does it foster better decision-making, but I think it also helps the narrative of the decision-making and helps the public understand what's going on. And that's actually better. So even if it's really bad news, it's better to tell people than to try and brush it under a, under the carpet. And I think sort of overall, you know, the, the UK, along with all advanced economies, did okay through the crisis and the economic functions of advanced economies have been okay, certainly not perfect. And and that is a real testament both to uh, the ability to, of government to help out in a really difficult period, which is a core function of government, uh, but also the resilience of our economies. Uh, sort of advanced capitalist economies are very resilient to shocks. With a little bit of help from government, we can get through a lot, and we have been through a lot over the past 15 years or so, um, that doesn't mean you can keep chucking bad things at, at households and companies, but it does mean that um, there is some fundamentally sound economic structures to fall back on, and the Treasury is one of them. Gemma, what lessons would you highlight? I would agree with everything that Chris has just outlined, but to um, throw another few others into the mix. One thing that was important was the strong working relationships between the Treasury and other delivery departments. Talking to people who were involved in that process, it seemed that being thrown together in the crisis really strengthened those relationships that already existed. So one challenge going forward will be how do you maintain that strong working relationship and trust between different departments as people move on and teams turn over. Another thing that we emphasise is the importance of strengthening the Treasury's capacity to generate and use high quality evidence. One aspect of that which we've already talked about is perhaps having more 
structures for crisis periods of ways of drawing in expertise from outside government. But in more normal times, the Treasury could also do more to strengthen its networks and contacts with academic experts outside government to really make sure it's drawing on the best quality analysis. One thing we think would help there would be the Treasury having something that's closer to a a more normal chief scientific advisor role within the department. Another area which we've also already talked about is developing data and systems that might be no regrets preparations for future circumstances. And we've already, even since the pandemic, had the energy crisis, which was another case where actually targeting help to those who needed it required data that it turned out government didn't really have about who had high energy needs and low incomes. And in the end, we ended up with another situation of government spending a lot of money doing universal blanket support because it didn't have the data or information necessary to target that more closely. So we've already seen other examples of where better data, better systems Mm -hmm. that give you more scope for targeting things would have helped. And I think that's further questions the Treasury needs to keep thinking about. Ollie, so if uh, Chris and Gemma have done lessons for the Treasury, what what are some of the lessons for the rest of government? I think one relates to what we just discussed earlier about the stronger function in the Cabinet Office. Lots of people did point to that as making a difference. As Chris says, it's very hard to unpick from the arrival of the vaccine. But having a strong analysis function in the Cabinet Office to bring together analysis on domestic policy issues is something that a lot of our interviews agreed would be very important for the future. We do have a very similar thing for uh, intelligence issues, um, so replicating that for domestic policy issues definitely seems like a worthwhile lesson to take from the pandemic. I think there are just a couple of other things that was said to the Treasury that I think also apply elsewhere. One is risk preparation. Our colleagues put out a report on that called Managing Extreme Risks a while ago, Uh, that's definitely worth a read for anyone interested in this. And then finally, something that we didn't really manage to get to the bottom of in our report, but we've alluded to a couple of times in the podcast, is the extent to which the analysis that was shared was influenced by the quite strong preferences of ministers throughout the, the, the pandemic. I think it's important for the COVID inquiry to look at this specifically in the context of the pandemic, but I think it possibly also points to wider issues in the minister-civil service relationship. I have argued that this sort of problem is exactly why the civil service needs to be put on a statutory footing. Thanks, Ollie. I have a feeling that the ministerial and civil service relationship is something we'll come back to in uh, the next episode of Inside Briefing uh, this week. (laughs) And that's it for today. Many thanks to Gemma and Ollie, and especially to Chris Giles for joining us on today's podcast. The report is out on Wednesday, so make sure you head to our website and download a copy. It's a brilliant, rigorous and eye-opening read. It captures what the Treasury got right, not least standing up incredibly important and ambitious schemes at incredibly short notice. And it also captures where the Treasury can improve. And that's the point. No government was ever going to get everything right in its response to the pandemic, but everyone in government will want to do things better if such a challenge ever arises again. Thanks for listening.